For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. This is part three in a three-part series on Washington, D.C. I'm turning over the mic to the CSIS Global Food Security Program for today's episode. I'm Eilish Sambilji, Program Manager for the Global Food Security Program here at CSIS, and our guest today is Christopher Bradshaw. Founder and Executive Director of Dreaming Out Loud, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., focused on creating economic opportunity within marginalized communities by building healthy, equitable food systems. He was recently awarded Georgetown's 2021 John Thompson Jr. Legacy of a Dream Award, named one of Eating Well's 2021 American Food Heroes, and is a 2021 Black Voices for Black Justice Fund awardee. Chris is the longest serving member of the DC Food Policy Council. He's an alumnus of Howard University and one of Washington Post's favorite people per their DC Dream Day series. Today, Chris, welcome to Reset the Table podcast. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. So Chris, Dreaming Out Loud really does it all from education to job training, to farming, to policy. What made you decide to create an interdisciplinary organization rather than one that might focus on, say, urban farming exclusively or nutrition in schools exclusively? Yeah, I think the approach came about because we realized that there were so many different parts of the system that were broken or designed actually to exclude or continue to make it difficult for folks to participate both in terms of accessing healthy food, in terms of accessing economic opportunity through the food system at various points, that you had to look at it more systemically and structurally and have this ecosystem approach, which the food system, so many different parts are interconnected. You couldn't really just focus on one part. If you focus singularly on food entrepreneurship or cooperative development, what have you, and there's still no infrastructure for those, you know, those enterprises to operate, you're going to run into a challenge. If they still can't access capital, you're going to run into a challenge. And if you're operating in a community where the racial wealth gap is as wide as the Grand Canyon and growing, you're going to have a challenge. And so you can't just say well, you're going to take one approach. You can't divorce any programmatic efforts from the larger structural and systemic issues. And so our approach evolved in that way. I think from the name Dreaming Out Loud, one might not immediately realize that at the core of what you do is food and racial justice. And so what does that mean to you to dream out loud? Or what does that mean for folks who are involved in your organization? You know, it is really aspirational and inspirational to a lot of folks. There's a lot of weight 
and history connected to the word dream in American life, whether that's, you know, the American dream or I have a dream speech. But our work is deeply informed by those histories, you know, of shadow slavery, of Jim Crow, of redlining, the things that have shaped what was possible to be dreamt of by Black folks in America over the course of time, recognizing that, but also being never ending in terms of our access to hope and continuing to grow strategies that will eventually lead to liberation so that future generations don't have to have limitations on their dreams or on what they can achieve. But what undergirds all of those you know, lofty thoughts and ideas is an approach to going about the work in critical and intentional ways, bit by bit, and being thoughtful in how we're constructing what we believe the next step should look like and the ways in which we work to undo structural and systemic barriers. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, here's the way it should be, but we're gonna do the work to get there kind of a frame. It reminds me of something that you said during a past event with the Georgetown MLK Initiative. This idea of dreaming out loud, both as a sentiment almost of resistance against that legacy of slavery and shadow slavery and racism that's still very much so a part of the day-to-day life in the United States, but also this guiding North Star of what it can be and what it should be. And you said human beings cannot orient themselves without food. And tells a story about who you are. Well, there are a lot of conversations right now about the untold history of the United States, the things we may not learn. There are components of history that are not flushed out in American history classes. And so I've been thinking about the legacy of, of racism and how that continues to live in many aspects of U.S. food systems. The cultivation and land ownership, food preparation, food access, proximity, and how that narrative is actually quite disorienting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about the intentional construction of what we call food apartheid, and uh, Karen Washington was the elder who first coined that term. And we talk about that intentional construction, the ways in which we were dislocated from our food ways was for the purpose of disorientation. It would make it harder to resist when you got here as property. And so, you know, our work is about acknowledging and understanding that, but also uplifting the food ways that we're able to preserve and that we are also able to reinvent and create new ones. And that those things are critical to our continued resistance and our next steps in flourishing. I really and truly believe that. And so thinking about passing recipes down to future generations is something that I've been having conversations with uh, friends about. And we've been talking about how, you know, there's less of the grandmother passing down the recipes occurring because of the ways in which our modern food system has shifted. And so for us, you know, we want to think about ways that we can continue to bring those culinary traditions into the work that we're doing, enliven them, highlight them so that they're the cool thing to do on Instagram, but also that folks are able to even benefit from them if there's a cookbook to be produced, right, and shared with the world and shared with your community. I think that the food system is so powerful because of its threads throughout history and that reshaping the food system is critical to human survival, not just Black liberation. You talk about climate change as well, you know, regenerative agriculture, getting away from these industrial agricultural ways is critical to the next stage of human survival. And so this is all a part of the same 
frame that capitalism has placed on our current food system where everything has to be cheap, heavy meat diets that are subsidized by corn. You know, there's so many cascading impacts that come from just a profit motive that is over not just people, but over planet. And so that has to shift. The exploitation of labor is something that continues in the food system and devaluing of labor. And so that's what we want to engage in. Yeah, that is no small feat. You mentioned industrial food systems, and I think quite often about the tricky situation that we're in and that we have quite an efficient agriculture system for very specific things. I I would say that we're efficient in being able to move food from one place to another. We're able to make food that we produce cheap and available in certain contexts, but some of the things that I think we have sacrificed are nutritional quality of these items. I I think there's quite a lot of conversations that are happening around a food systems transformation, whatever that is going to end up meaning. And I, I hope that as these conversations continue to take greater root within the policy sphere, or perhaps even the administration, that we're seeing some genuine conversations around what does that actually look like? A true food systems transformation that still makes food readily accessible and affordable for all families throughout the United States and is inclusive of the kinds of foods that people need to nourish themselves. Yeah, I think critical to that is recognizing true costs. You know, what are the true costs of food of those things? And having systems that recognize those costs in justly and rightly apportion the profits and revenue to those parts, right? So if the true cost of justly compensated labor is at X number of dollars, well, then the cost of said product needs to go up. But we have externalized costs as it relates to the cheap things that we produce, right? So the subsidized corn that is in then turned into high fructose corn syrup and is in everything, wreaking havoc on our bodies and and communities as it relates to food-related diseases. You know, you go to McDonald's and the hamburger is a dollar because of all the subsidies. And those costs are externalized in our healthcare system and other systems that we then have to do this type of work to try and counteract to fight against. So if we were to be able to shift those things, that would be one of the steps in the right direction to shaping the food system that we want. But what's in the way of that are the politics, the power systems, the folks that have the power to hire the lobbyists to keep the subsidies going, the folks that have the ability to pressure public officials, politicians into supporting legislation or continued ways of of structuring the farm bill or, or, or what have you that keep these things going, keep them in place. And even as far as utilizing militias and violence against communities that try to organize against that. One of the historical events we point to is the Elaine Massacre, which was a massacre of hundreds of black sharecroppers who formed to organize in Elaine, Arkansas, to press for union rights and fair wages. So we do not have to look to some foreign source for stories of oppression as it relates to food uh, and maintaining power structures that keep people on top of a food chain, not just in the literal sense of food, but as it relates to a metaphor for human systems and nation states and controlling capital. And so when you talk about food, you're, you're talking about all these different layers 
Absolutely. And to your point of violence not only having to be physical, I think a phrase that you don't hear too often, but I think really aptly describes the types of barriers that people in the United States face when they're trying to interact with more just food system, especially communities of color throughout the United States, is the concept of structural violence and how difficult it is, not just through physical barriers of oppression, but through administrative barriers to being able to access emergency assistance like SNAP and WIC or unemployment benefits. Yeah, we talk about hunger as violence and we talk about food insecurity and hunger, terms that people are familiar with. And we work to reframe and rephrase those as racial and economic justice issues. When folks have been driven off of land due to racialized violence, due to you know discriminatory practices at the USDA, all of those impact the ability for folks to generate wealth, um, generational wealth and income that would allow someone to afford healthy food. So, you know, in our communities here in D.C., prior to the pandemic, white wealth is 81 times that of black wealth. And, you know, you have a extinction level event in terms of black wealth like the pandemic, COVID-19, and ongoing with and layered into the 400-year pandemic of white supremacy here. I've never heard it phrased as the 400-year pandemic of white supremacy. COVID-19, the viral pandemic, happened amidst the 400-year pandemic of white supremacy. You know, the 1619 Project came out just a few years ago and reframed that for many of us and introduced that into the national conversation, just what this period of existence has been. And food insecurity, hunger, terms that people are familiar with are utilized to talk about what is happening when a set of circumstances disallows someone to afford or have access to healthy food. And we work to rephrase and reframe those things as racial and economic justice issues, very much contextualized by works like the 1619 Project. And the 1619 Project, for folks who are listening who may not be familiar, is a program by Nicole Hannah-Jones looking at the legacy of slavery in the United States. And it, it was timed on the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved folks to the United States. And so going back to what you said, as food security distinctly being a, a racial justice issue, how are you approaching the relationship between food and community and history through the programming or the services that are provided through Dreaming Out Loud? I think in a number of ways. I think through storytelling, through making sure that the voices of community members, farmers, food makers are elevated and able to voice what those connections are in their own authentic words. Our programmatic offerings are working to model the vision of this food system that we would hope to see if we had a magic wand and could wave it and, and rewrite things. But we are also in acknowledgement that it is insufficient to the scale of the problem and the depth of the problem. And so much of our work is also framing an advocacy platform and a political platform that speaks to that, that the larger structural changes are needed up to and including holistic reparations. The United Nations had a report that Black folks in America are owed $14 trillion in reparations. That's a trillion with a T. That's a big number, and no surprise, given the 400 years that have passed. Right, right. And, you know, when you talk about reparations, yeah, for many folks, the first thing that comes to mind are cash payments to individuals, which 
certainly are necessary, but you also need institutional repair and advancement of our institutions. There was just a settlement, uh, one of the HBCUs, where they were awarded, I think it was $570 million in funding because of the disparate number that they received in relation to the white state school. That's a whole lot of labs that could have been built to train new scientists that could have had new patents, right? That could have had new uh, tech transfer agreements that funded the university and grew their endowment. This is how the cascading impacts of denial of the resources, of the ability to accumulate the resources and to develop your own people and your own institutions. Absolutely. And I think what I, what I run into often is uh, reparations can be a very scary word for some people. And I think that what is lost in that understanding on, on those folks is that there has been such a significant opportunity cost, not just for people of color in the United States and black Americans, but for everybody. Like the example you just gave about building labs, that behooves the entirety of the United States in research and development. Right. You can cut your nose off to spite your face, right? You, you can be so racist that you'll undermine your own empire on purpose. And so it's remarkable to watch it happen and to see it happen. And you, you think about certain buzzwords, reparations is scary because it gets down to redistribution, right? That's a buzzword you could throw out there in American political life and get a reaction, you know, where folks are going to fall. It's like some segment of the population thinks to even just yell no take backs and justice can never happen. It brings me back to a lot of the conversations that I had over the last four years returning home to Wisconsin when conversations around reparation or food insecurity and social programs would come up and the very one-sided understanding about who benefits from those those kinds of emergency assistance programs and what this concept, the, the bootstraps myth in the United States the myth, you know, not the the rule or the like thing to aspire to. And this idea that, well, I, I work for what I have. Everyone should work for what, what they have. And I, I think that that is a, a huge misunderstanding within the conversations about justice in the United States of like, that is just being handed to somebody as if the political organizing and the discourse and the efforts and the sacrifices that were made along the way aren't other forms of very real work. Yeah, the mythology around hard work and rugged individualism and entrepreneurship and all sorts of things are frustrating, you know. I see it in our community as it even relates to, you know, the dialogue over the past several years, you know, as it relates to police brutality, but even increasingly since the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests and BLM protests of last summer, as if we can bootstrap our way out of systemic and structural oppression that has shaped itself over 400 years and has this massive power. And that is part and partial to the whole American mythology around it, right? So we're not immune to it, even though we're in the midst of it, of the the circumstances that we're, that we're fighting against. And I think that, you know, the hard work mythology comes from a, a certain level of entitlement and privilege. Yeah, that, that imagines and, and postures as if anyone that has failed to reach some level of quote-unquote success, however may be defined mostly material or financial here, that it is some fault of theirs and 
just simply a product of, of lack of hard work, not that their hard work was simply denied the next step or um, destroyed or disadvantaged in some way. And so these are the things that we have to have conversations about and continue to talk about. But we do see forces working, regressive forces working to curtail conversations I think, you know, even before the pandemic, we know that the, the U.S. government has long tolerated unnecessarily high levels of food insecurity within its borders and disparities in, in food insecurity between white communities and black and BIPOC communities as well. And these gaps are, they're, they're not negligible. They are large. I, I think it was prior to COVID-19, nearly 400 people in the DMV, so in the Washington region alone, struggled with food insecurity. And today, the Capital Area Food Bank estimates that that number increased by about 200,000 individuals uh, as a result of the pandemic. And yet, I think it's difficult for people to conceptualize the real human lives that make up these statistics, or, or going back to the stories that you talk about, the, the real human beings who are subjected to this, you must just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's dehumanizing this idea that, oh, well, you know, this is just happening to some people and not maybe your neighbor or someone who sits next to you in church or the person who's sitting behind you at the DMV. Like, it's not, it's not in my backyard. It's not my issue. When food security and hunger and racism in the United States is, is everybody's issue. Right. It really is. It is the air that we breathe. I think about how many folks that we saw come to our markets that had never previously been on SNAP and how life-altering that has to be from a mental-emotional perspective. I also wonder what conversions happen when those circumstances occur. Do you, do you then empathize with folks who have had um, have, who've been stuck in you know, generational cycles? You know, I certainly hope so. Um, but, you know, these circumstances, while they're deeply challenging and painful and traumatic, can also be pivot points. Uh, and so I hope that they're pivot points. Uh, but, you know, part of making the pivot happen is making it happen. And so that is both um, being able to connect with folks and talk with folks, but also being able to access larger forums to have conversations um, um, to continue organizing and building out the actions that make up, uh, you know, a real platform for structural change. Absolutely. And uh, something that I am struck by in the context of the pandemic and also after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, so many people turning to food security and hunger in the United States is a very serious issue to be grappling with and racism as a very serious issue to be grappling with. We see that also ripple at the, the policy level. I myself am hoping to see a renewed commitment and a meaningful commitment from national and, and local governments to address the very solvable problem of hunger in the United States. Um, and I think back to right at the outset of 2021, uh, the second gentleman visited the farm at Kelly Miller that Dreaming Out Loud runs. What was that like for you? as someone who's been working on this for much longer than the COVID-19 pandemic has been happening. And do you find this kind of attention from the new administration a cause for optimism? That experience was interesting in that it was our first 
um, visit of, you know, what folks would call a high-level visitor. There was discussion internally about whether or not to accept what that meant and how to engage. Our reason for engaging was to be able to pivot talking points and thinking by being able to reframe, you know, food insecurity as a racial and economic justice issue and to be able to have a second gentleman hear that and to talk about our work and contextualize our work explicitly from the beginning as he came up the stairs to visit the farm um, said that, you know, we are in a community shaped by uh, public policy that did damage and did harm and were the survivors of that policy. And so we were able to talk about those things and talk about food insecurity as a racial and economic justice issue. We were also able to host Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton and Congressperson Jim McGovern about a month or so ago as well and have a similar conversation. Congressperson McGovern has a uh, an initiative to end hunger by 2030. That's a very uh, ambitious goal. I want to help him get there. Um, and and then, you know, the approach and the understanding is that it is a, a holistic issue that doesn't need to just concern the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but intersecting with other agencies that could, you know, form this lattice work of, of policies and programs that could help to address some of the systemic and structural challenges that we're talking about uh, and the damage and the harms from the public policy that has damaged our communities. And so, you know, we have to continue to frame those issues for folks that do have access to power, that do have access to resources um, to begin repairing what has been done. Uh, but you can't do that without naming the harms. And, you know, engaging with folks in these positions is a part of being able to play a role in um, uh, making change happen. It's not the whole picture, but it's a piece of it. All of this work is undergirded by being able to be organized and in community with folks impacted most by the work uh, and having folks being able to, uh, you know, bring their voice to the table uh, at these types of uh, engagements. Yeah, and, and with those visits in mind, what are the recommendations that you have, or maybe you already shared with the second gentleman and the Congress people and for the Biden and Harris administration as they take on tackling the legacy of, of racism in the United States and the food insecurity and hunger that are connected to that? Absolutely. We told all of them and will continue to that we need comprehensive, holistic reparations and protections from, you know, the regressive forces that and backlash that uh, unfortunately always comes with every marker of, of potential progress or, or alleged progress in American life. And so what we have to continue to do is frame what is happening and say what is happening and be unafraid to speak truth to power. You can build out another Black Wall Street, another Tulsa, another backlash will come to whatever you build. That's why we want to continue to make sure that when, you know, you're not going to war alone, that you have allies that also uh, march to that same drum and understand those circumstances and can help play a role in voicing those solutions and next steps to, to meeting challenges to those elected officials and other folks that have power. So the protections that you're talking about, what would those look like? Are, are those policy protections written into legislation? Is it something else? 
Yes, I believe so. Policy protections written into legislation with enforcement teeth. One of the things that the uh, previous administration worked to do is dismantle civil rights uh, divisions within multiple agencies. That is meant to erode the protections. Even if you can't totally eliminate those divisions, if you under-resource them, hamstring them with with all sorts of regulations and what have you, Mm -hmm. you end up making them ineffectual. And that was the goal, right? If they couldn't outright eliminate them. So you need to then therefore reestablish those uh, types of divisions within agencies, better resource them, stronger protections of the divisions within the agencies. I think those are some of the places that you can start in terms of writing protections into legislation. Transparency is another major way to provide cover or protection for folks. Um, If you can shed sunlight on circumstances, folks can see what's going on and the information is available so that you can have the data to show what you might already know is true. So you you and Tambor Ray Stevenson are the two longest serving members of the DC Food Policy Council. And so I'm quite sure between Dreaming Out Loud and the pandemic and the passage of the DC Comprehensive Plan back in May, you've been really busy is probably an understatement. <laughs> uh, and, and so looking at the most recent version of the plan, by its namesake, it's comprehensive. It's, it's emphasizing housing affordability, COVID-19 recovery, and racial and economic equality. So c- could you explain why this plan is, is so important and what it could or, or should mean for food security for Washingtonians? Mm-hmm. I can tell you why comprehensive plans are so important. They're so important because they lay out the strategic goals and initiatives that the city is to undertake. And you can write all sorts of things in the comprehensive plans. You have all sorts of interests that work to shape it in a way that benefits them. And so, you know, folks like Empower DC have done incredible work around utilizing the comprehensive plan to advance just causes like affordable housing. And we've also worked in previous years when things weren't so crazy more intently on the comprehensive plan to make sure that food access, uh, food insecurity, economic justice, and racial justice through food have been parts of the comprehensive plan. So within that, you can work to place phrases and goals and indicators that might say something like, make sure that every DC resident is within you know, half a mile or, or, or less of a grocery store. You can utilize a comprehensive plan to advance strategies like that that would then therefore be able to be actualized down the road. And this has been a, a long time coming because I think it was back in 2017. I worked with you and other members of, of the Policy Council, both folks who, who volunteer and who are members, on, on drafting amendments to this plan. I mean, this is no small piece of legislation, obviously, and it has been a long time coming. Yeah, a long time coming and a lot more work to do. The title of our podcast is, is Reset the Table, representing the idea that long before COVID-19 impacted communities domestically in the United States and globally, there existed very concerning trends in, in food security. And so based on your work on the DC Food Policy Council and with Dreaming Out Loud, what does resetting the table look like to you? Man, resetting the table would be leveling the playing ground for everyone. It would look like holistic and comprehensive reparations that allowed for folks to be at the table. It would look like ending subsidies for the most harmful 
aspects of the food system. It would look like fair wages. It would look like affordable housing. It would look like fair prices for products for farmers so that it's actually profitable to farm. So farmers don't have side jobs in order to farm. It would look like access to commercial kitchen space for folks to be able to take their grandmother's cookie recipe and turn it into a business that could be passed down to their kids and generate generational wealth. It looks like repairing the harms from places like uh, Elaine and Rosewood and Tulsa. It looks like gender equity. It looks like all of those things to me. For folks who listen to our conversation, there's an element of self-education that needs to happen. And so where does that start and how does that turn into something that is actionable and helpful? So one of the places I would start, a good friend, Melissa L. Jones, has an incredible podcast called Food Talks in Color. Really incredible. She interviews folks from across the spectrum as it relates to people of color in food. So she collects stories from farmers food makers, policy folks, advocates and activists and organizers, and really does a great job of of digging into the layers of history, personal stories and connections and why people undertake some of the types of work that they do, the challenges as well as the, the triumphs. So it's a really great podcast. We talked about the 1619 Project earlier. Those are good places to start. They can kind of give you a frame of big picture questions, but also can dial down into some specific local individual stories as well. Great. And I know that if you're, for folks that are in the DMV area, Dreaming Out Loud has a lot of volunteer opportunities, both at the farm at Kelly Miller, the food hub, and there are other administrative opportunities as well for volunteering. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, we have the farm at Kelly Miller. We're working to take on a second farm project next year Fort Stanton. And within our food hub, we have opportunities to help pack shares of our Black Farm Community Supported Agriculture Program and other opportunities down the road. Theoretically, once we are able to safely gather consistently, we have events and other things where you can plug in and, and, and chip in. Absolutely. And, and I hope that that includes seeing you at a DC Food Policy Council meeting in person soon when that is, that is also safe. <laughs> um, we'll have we cross our fingers that that is soon. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been a true pleasure to talk and learn from you and so glad we could find the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invite and the flexibility. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.